Welcome to A Second Chance, personal stories of near-death experiences, the journey and beyond. For the most positive and uplifting time on the radio, stay tuned and get in tune with your host, Gina Kane of Second Chance Radio. Welcome to A Second Chance Podcast. I have with me here the author of the book, Redefine Rich, Matt Hamm, and I'm very excited to share his story and some of his past that has happened before he wrote the book. So welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for giving us your time today. Absolutely, Gina. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Could you start by introducing yourself to our guests so they can get to know you a little bit better? Absolutely, yes. So my name is Matt Hamm, and I, um, I live down in Wilmington, North Carolina, kind of coastal North Carolina. This is my hometown. It's where I grew up. I am first and foremost a husband to my gorgeous wife, Liz, and we have three little boys, Matthew, Wyatt, and Grayson, and they are tucked in pretty tight with me. Matthew's four and a half, and the twins, we have identical twin boys, Wyatt and Grayson, and they are three, and that is uh, pretty much the, the primary thing in my life. And then um, outside of that, I actually uh, am an insurance agent with an insurance company here in North Carolina. North Carolina Farm Bureau is the name of the organization. And uh, as you mentioned, about two years ago, I began you know, feeling this kind of uh, calling or whisper, how do you want to refer to it, to write a book, which uh, I have said many times was uh, crazy in and of itself. But nonetheless, here we stand a couple of years later, and uh, the Redefined Rich was published just a few months ago. And it's been a really exciting journey seeing that book and that message come to life. And there's a lot of really cool things going on with it. I have to be honest with you, I don't even know where to start because there's not even enough time to cover how many amazing things you share in this book. But a few key points for me that I found absolutely touching is the story of your aunt and yes. the story the story of your twins and um, the concept of being broken. I think those were the three major points that I really enjoyed, but there is a lot of great information in this book, Matt. Well, thanks so much. You know, it's really curious to me, Gina, in talking with different people, the book, you know, is kind of um, out out there now, which is just wild to me. I mean, you know, as, as I mentioned, because you, you, you're in Canada, right? Yes, I am. Yeah, so you, you know, it's like this is another country, and this is just a, like amazing how like technology and how just the, the social engagement of today's world, like the opportunity to share messages like this, and you know, with the, with the podcast certainly reaching across, you know, the oceans and all. It's just so cool to me to see the, the message kind of take off, and it's really interesting to me too to see how you know different people see different things, and, and that's so encouraging to me. And, um, and and for me, the book never it never started from a place of like, hey, you need to write a book. I mean, I, I was probably the last person in the world that ever thought I had a story to tell. And you know, I was like I said, a dad, an insurance agent, and that was going to be what I did. That was kind of my career, you know, my ambition. And I had no interest in writing a book, but for whatever reason, there was just this urge, this this calling that that would not leave me alone. It just would not go away. And and kind of begrudgingly, I finally said, fine, <laughs> you know, I'll, I'll write the book. And, and I said, well, <laughs> what do you want this book to be about? You know, it's kind of like having this internal conversation with God. I was like, what do you want this book to be about? You know, what is this all about? And when you start pressing into that deeper place in your life and you start to look back at your past objectively, you know, and, and really kind of take off the, the shroud of all the 
you know, kind of pretense and you say, okay, what's going on here? You know, what happened and what have I learned from it? And you start to see these things. I at least saw a common theme, and I think most people do as well. And for me, it really began a number of years ago, about eight years ago now. My aunt, who I was very, very close with, was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And in, in the way of cancer diagnosis, it's a fair, fairly curable form of cancer if there is such a thing. And and so we never really had any thoughts that she would be, um, you know, it would, it would bother her. She was going through treatment, she was going to be fine. And so, you know, we we kind of in denial that, you know, things were getting worse. And so about a year and a half into her battle, my uncle called me and said, you know, Matt, um, if you want to see your aunt, now's the time. And and I'm like, what's wrong? I mean, like, she's, she's getting better, right? And, you know, we didn't know this, but she had been given a terminal diagnosis about a month before. And the, the, the non-Hodgkin lymphoma had spread. It was just out of control, and her body was filling with fluid. And, you know, really she was starting to suffocate. And it was just a, a gut-wrenching time in, in my life. I was 25, 26 at the time. And I remember going to the hospital, and and I walked into her hospital, you know, the, the lobby area. There's 30 or so family and friends, you know, everywhere. We had a big family, a lot of extended family, a lot of friends. And so my aunt was a well-loved person. So there's people everywhere. And I wanted to see her. So I stepped into her hospital room expecting it to be full as well, and it was empty. And she was in there by herself. And I remember sitting on the bed and just laying there. And as she was laying there, I stepped into the room, and she kind of caught me out of a peripheral. And she turned and she said, hey, Matt, Matt. And that's kind of like a term of endearment that she called me. And, and I went over and sat by her bedside, and I was holding her hand. And, you know, I, you don't know what to say to someone who's facing that type of situation. And so I just sat there and I prayed with her. And in the midst of that, Gina, uh, a nurse stepped into the room. And as the nurse stepped into the room, uh, the nurse just started kind of helping my aunt get comfortable. And when she propped my aunt up with a pillow, it allowed a bunch of, like, air to rush into my aunt's lungs. And my aunt kind of grabbed a breath and looked at the nurse and said, you make my life easy. And without hesitation, this nurse looked back at my aunt and said, you make my life rich. And as I was as I was writing this, you know, like eight years after it had happened, as soon as I wrote those words, it was it was like I, I felt them in a place that I just can't describe it. It was like, this is what your book is supposed to be about. And and that, to me, was kind of the the catalyst moment. That was the key moment. I remember sitting at my kitchen table, and I haven't told many people this, but I'm weeping at, and, and, and sitting there feeling so unqualified to tell the story and not knowing, you know, any of the details of the how mm-hmm. or, or of the why, you know. I, I just knew what. You know, I knew that I was supposed to write this book. And and so I, I just started being obedient to that and started pressing into that place. And, and as I started to write, I saw this theme emerge in my own life that I had chased, you know, the, the world's definition of richness in my own life. And I had, you know, to some degree at a young age kind of achieved that in, in the real estate sales market, but I had also seen it disappear. And I've seen a number of family, uh, you know, uh, uh, family, extended family members and, and friends and uh, business associates that had just, you know, money in, in, a, in a really terrible way kind of controlled their life. 
and mm-hmm. and I and I saw that this pursuit of richness had had often become corrupt. The American dream, you know, that we talk about, that you know, it, it had become kind of a corrupted version of itself. And so I started to look at so what actually does it mean to be rich? And so that's really probably a longer story than you know than um, you might have cared to hear. But that's that's the full you know catalyst for how this whole this whole movement in the book began. Gosh, I don't think it's too long of a story. You have me tearing up because you told that story just so amazingly. I felt like I was sitting in the hospital with you. You know, it's, and, it's, uh, every time that I have the, the privilege to tell it, um, it it brings me back in a way to that place. And it is such an absolute blessing all over again because I, even it was it was strange the other night, Gene. I actually had a, a dream about my Aunt Trish. And... You know, I, I talk about her often, and so I had this dream, and she was so happy. You know, she was smiling, she was laughing, and, and it's certainly how I remember her. But in a way, I just feel like that, that her legacy is being carried on you know, through this message and through the, you know, the, the awesome things that are happening with it. And I, do, and I do believe it's an honor to her and kind of in memory of her. So that's just a real privilege for me. I think so. Would you be willing to share just a couple minutes of what she was like? It really just touched my heart to hear how she handled the entire situation. Yeah, so so in the book, we and, and you've read the book, so you know, but it, I, I refer to her as having a Disney mentality, you know. Mm-hmm. And the, the, by that, I mean that, like, you know, if, if, if you have a, like, as, when I was growing up, Disney, you know, Disney, of course, is still Disney. But when I was growing up, it was like The Lion King and The Little Mermaid and Aladdin, you know. And every single one of those Disney movies had a similar storyline, you know, like in in Aladdin, um, you know, Jafar, like the evil sorcerer, is going to steal the genie and take over the world. And, you know, we think that Aladdin is never going to, you know what I mean, and Jasmine are never going to get It's just the same storyline, the, the Lion King. You know, you have Simba who runs away when his, uh, when Mufasa dies and Scar's going to take over. And so there's always these tragedies in the midst of these Disney stories, but they're always overcome, you know, in a triumphant way. It's like, you know, victory snatched from the jaws of defeat. And and that is kind of the mentality with which my aunt just engaged life. You know, she just saw the the, the joy and, and the victory in every circumstance and in every situation. And she loved Disney, you know. And so that, that I personify her in that way because that's just how she was. And when she was diagnosed with cancer, it was never about, um, oh, woe is me. Um, you know, I'm sure, I know, you know, after talking to my uncle and really kind of, you know, understanding better that she had some very, very, very difficult times. But in the midst of her everyday life, she never wanted to be a burden on anybody, and so much so that Christmas of 2006, she wanted to host this big Christmas party. And it was probably the most absurd thing she could have done because she had gotten a terminal diagnosis about three weeks prior. But she wanted to host a Christmas party. And so one of the, you know, one of the last memories I have of my aunt, you know, kind of, you know, before she got to the hospital, was at her house, and she was making eggnog and running around the house in her Christmas sweater and just the biggest smile on her face. But, you know, you could just tell in the midst of that that, you know, she was not doing well because her, her body was retaining fluid and she was getting very winded, but she was still so engaged, and she refused to cancel that party, even in the midst of a terminal diagnosis. And so I think that we can learn quite a bit from from that, and that mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's not so much about what's going on in our lives; it's about how we're responding to it. 
And so a lot of the things when I'm working with people or talking to groups or whatever it is I'm doing, I just encourage them, you know, to really think about it. Now, listen, if there's one common thing in, in all of our lives, it's adversity. We're, we're going to face adversity. We're going to face challenges. And some are more difficult than others, but we all have the ability to choose how we respond in the midst of that adversity. And I think that's really the kind of key point. Um, that, that kind of echoes the sentiments of Viktor Frankl in his book, Man's Search for Meaning. That's really the, the premise of, of that, is that we can choose how to respond regardless of our circumstances. I've heard of that book, but I haven't read it. Would you, obviously, you would recommend it. Oh, my goodness. It, it is one of the most epic um, nonfiction accounts that I have ever read. Viktor Frankl was a um, psychologist, psychiatrist, um, and I can't remember his nation of origin, but he was over in Europe. And uh, when World War II broke out, he had the opportunity to flee because the Germans were going to take his people, and they knew this was coming. But Victor refused to leave his parents, who were elderly. And because of that, he ended up being imprisoned in Auschwitz. And so he he experienced the most, you know, hellacious uh, conditions that, that, you know, our world probably has ever seen in, in the concentration camps in World War II. And in the midst of that, he, he saw death and he saw just these awful situations all the way around him. But he, he recognized that some people um, died not from their physical impairment, but from loss of hope. And, you know, they lost, they they, 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 they passed away because they, they gave up really on life. And so he, he said that even in the midst of suffering, there is purpose. And even in the midst of tragedy, there's the opportunity to choose how you respond. It's, it's a brilliant book. You should definitely check it out. I would highly encourage everybody listening to um, to read Man's Search for Meaning by Victor Frankl. Excellent. I'll put that in the show notes, and I'm going to pick that up today. Thank you so much. Do that. So where did your journey continue from here? You you found the name of the book very organically, and then yes. you sat down and you just started to write? Yeah, well, it was, you know, so the words really were what stuck with me. You make my life rich. And so um, you make my life rich was the working title of the book for the longest time. But, you know, I, for whatever reason, as as the journey continued, I really just started asking people, you know, what does it mean to you to be rich? What does it mean to you to live a rich life? And as I, as I pursued that, I started to see some kind of commonalities among people and, and common themes that emerged in, you know, books I was reading and just experiences that I was having. And 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 so the, the book kind of came to life in a very you know, organic ways, like the things around me and the stories of my past and the relationships in my life. I was, I was looking at these things with through a new lens. You know, it's like my my eyes were being transformed because um, my, my I had changed the, the way that I viewed this word rich. And so I started to see these rich experiences and so many things. And um, really and truly, Gina, as you know, you've read the book. It 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 boiled down into four principles. You know, I'm, I'm a fairly simple learner. I think that. You know, I like and wanted to provide something that would be easy to retain for folks. And so we came up with an acronym, R-I-C-H, RICH, that was a four-part, uh, four-principle acronym that really highlighted these different principles that I was seeing in, in a lot of the people that I encountered. That's beautiful. Would you like to share those with our audience? Yeah, sure, sure. So so the, the R is really where the journey begins for all of us. And the R in the acronym is recognize you're broken. And... You mentioned in the intro that was something that really stuck with you and, and knowing your story, having talked with you, and, and, you know, that that is such a key thing for so many folks because I think the refusal um, or 
you know, when we are in denial that something about mm-hmm. us is broken, we we really start to set up ourselves to fail because we feel like by our own power and, and by our willpower we're going to be able to kind of overcome anything and everything. And, and, and I think that in the midst of searching for what it means to live a rich life, the play on that is, is that, you know, in a financial sense, you would not aspire for great wealth if you already had it. And so you, you have to recognize that you, in fact, don't have any money or you are broke. And so in a personal sense, when you start to look at your life, you have to say, look, there are things that are broken. Like There are things that, you know, I have struggled with. There are situations, there are circumstances, there are things in my past, you know, that I have been broken, I am broken, and it's a continual process. And it's not necessarily the brokenness that we focus on or need to focus on, rather the, the healing that comes from um, processing that brokenness well. And I talk about, I use the language of like wounds and scars, you know, and, and like in pop yeah. culture, you know, there's songs that talk about the scars of the past and the scars of love that remind us and all that. And I think so often, like, we look at our scars being ugly and we look at scars as being placed where we were wounded. Mm-hmm. And the shift in perspective is, is rather than seeing our scars as place, well, places of brokenness, we need to see our scars as places of healing. And, yeah. and, and the body, the body tells us this naturally in our natural environment. Is, is screaming at us. It's like, you know, the body will heal in many ways, you know, and, and we can, and, and it will. It takes time, you know, and it, it is it is painful, but the healing process does does happen in the natural world, and I think it can happen, you know, emotionally. I think it can happen spiritually. I think it can happen in interpersonal ways. So in all of those things, I think that we can learn great lessons there. But, yeah, that's that's really where the, the brokenness principle, that's where it starts. And, um, you know, there's there's... There's a lot of, of different ways we go about, you know, talking about that in the book, but it really it boils down to, like I said earlier, it's not the fact that we are broken. It's, in fact, how we respond. And so kind of the question is, is you know, it's really difficult, but, like, look at the broken places. And, and I think that, you know, I was talking with a, a, a pastor and author, a guy named Brian Loritz, and, and I think he gets this maybe from C.S. Lewis, but he said that it's often that our greatest um, passion is burst out of our greatest pain. Hmm. And I, and our, I greatest, our greatest. Sorry, I just want to make sure I heard that right. Yeah, our greatest passion is often birthed out of our greatest pain. And wow. I, and I think that when we start to look at the broken places, you know, with with a desire to understand and heal them properly, then, mm-hmm. then we don't approach them with so much um, anger, maybe. Um, and frustration, I, I think we maybe approach it with new eyes and we start to see opportunities there to heal and opportunities to use that in a way to really help other people. And so I think mm-hmm. that that's kind of the key component of, of, of recognize you're broken. It kind of creates a foundation for you to build upon that you can, therefore, you know, just start to, well, code is principle two, and that's the kind of to jump there. You know, principle two is the eye of rich, and that is invest in others. And in a financial sense, you have to build wealth. In order to build wealth, you have to invest. And in the personal mm-hmm. sense, in this deeper definition of rich, just, it, it, there is no difference. You still have to invest, but it's, in fact, in the lives of others. And so you use your brokenness in the way you heal as a way to kind of pour over into the lives of others and, and really add value to them in whatever way that might be. And so that's the investment piece. And those two kind of work together hand in hand, and, and I think that's important for people to understand. I think it's amazing. I don't want to put you on the spot here. I haven't given you any interview questions to study, 
but off the top of your head, can you think of a few ways that somebody could begin to invest in others if they don't feel they have anything they can give right now? Absolutely. Fantastic question and, and one that I love addressing because so many times when I'm talking with groups, you know, Gene, that's what I, that's what I do. You know, I, I speak to organizations and, you know, whether it's churches or, or businesses, I mean, in many different, you know, um, contexts, but the, the, the concept is still the same. It's investing in others. You know, you, whether you take it in an interpersonal sense, relationships, or you take it in a business sense, you know, think about a business, you know, it, it's a primary goal of a business to, invest in their clients, you know, I mean, they're, you're there to serve. And, and, and so I think that that concept is true, whether it is, you know, like I said, personal or, or, or professional, but, you know, so often when I'm talking with people back to your question, they say, you know, well, I can't invest in somebody else. I don't know how, I don't have any money. You know, I'm already busy enough. I don't have any time. And so, you know, time and money are generally the, the two best ways I think you could invest. And most people say, I don't have either one of those, so I can't <laughs> invest. And so they don't do anything. And and we talk about this in the book, and, and I try to provide, because, listen, I'm, I'm very practical. You know, it's one thing to talk about great ideas. You know, it's one thing to kind of have ideas about things, but it's another thing to put them into action. And so mm-hmm. with the book, you know, hopefully you saw this, and I, I really try to encourage people, like, hey, here's something that you can do today, and here's something that you can do right now to invest in someone else. And we talk about it in the book, and it's very simple. People are like, that's just silly, but it's smiling. Like smiling more, I think, is one of the greatest gifts that we can give someone is a, is a smile. You know, when you, when you genuinely learn the art of smiling, you know, smile when you talk. And, you know, it, it, it's one of those things as you practice it, you find that, you know, your mood just, it, it increases and you, and you start to focus more outwardly than inwardly and you know when you're smiling your eyes just open and they light up and it's just an engaging thing for people and and I don't know if you've been this way but if you're having a bad day and you you encounter somebody that's making you know they're laughing or they're making you laugh or they're smiling at you it's hard not to smile back and so <laughs> the, the smiles are contagious and and I think that you know smiling is a very simple way that you can just be immensely you know, focused on the fact that you can you know, change how you feel by the way that you act, mm-hmm. and and if you and if you start acting in a way, you know, that that encourages that, I, I think it's just empowering. And so we talk about smiling, and then I talk about another thing that I like to do. You know, I'm from the south, and everybody's like, "Oh, that's just a southern thing." But I love holding doors for people. Um, I, I often find myself I'm going into a, a convenience store, you know, whether it's my office building or we're going into a restaurant. I try to kind of run ahead of the crowd grab the door and, and hold it open and just as a way to say thank you and, and as a way to invest in someone else. And I, and I think that when we have this mindset of, of opening doors for folks and smiling at them, it starts to take the focus off of us, you know, and, and the focus goes on someone else. And, and I think what you happen, and this is a, a phrase we use in the book, we talk about compound opportunity. And, and with, with investing in the lives of, I mean, excuse me, with investing financially, you take advantage of what's called compound interest, you know, money upon money. And in a personal sense, you invest and it yields compound opportunity. And these are the opportunities that, that occur simply because you choose to invest in someone else. And, and, and what you'll see is, is that, you know, as you hold the door for someone, as you smile at someone, an opportunity will present itself to have a conversation. And, and you, you just never know where that might lead. Uh, there's a mm-hmm. fantastic story I saw online the other day about a young um, 
but he was a high school-age student. He was being bullied quite a bit at his school, and he actually moved schools after the death of his father. And he became intentional about holding doors for people at his school and hmm. in the midst of being bullied. Wow. And, and he, he just did that as a practice every single day. He said, I'm going to hold the door for everybody. And everybody started saying, hey, thank you. You know, and at first they were kind of making fun of him, but he just kept doing it. And he actually was voted prom king in a brand-new high school uh, later mm-hmm. that year. And he became one of, like, the most like popular in the sense, you know, n- not for the sake of popularity, but people just were attracted to him because he invested in them. And, and now this young guy, I can't remember his name, has slipped my mind. It's on my blog. That, you know, I'll, maybe if you'll email me, Gina, I'll send a link. Um, sure. But there, this young boy, he now, like, speaks to his classmates. Like, he's become a speaker. And, and it's just opened so many doors for him to explore this side of, you know, investing in others. And it's just cool to see. And so I think that they're, those are very simple things, but at the same time, very powerful. That is so amazing. Can you share with us your blog and some of your contact information if our guests would like to find you? Yeah, absolutely. So all of my blog and everything, you know, is at matham.com. It's my name. It's M-A-T-T-H-A-M. Dot com. There's only one M on ham. People get that confused sometimes, but one M on ham. It's M-A-T-T-H-A-M.com. I do a weekly blog. I do a weekly podcast as well. Um, the same title as my book, Redefine Rich, but all the, all the, all of that contact information is there. And there's nothing more that I love. It's just connecting with people. Um, like, like you and I, Gene. I mean, you know, um, when, when you order the book and we just have the opportunity to kind of exchange conversation and learn more about your story, like that's just how this message and how this movement has kind of grown very organically, and it's just very cool to see, you know, it kind of started to take root in, in different areas. Oh, I absolutely love it, and I love your book. I'm holding it in my hand right now. It's a beautiful-looking book, and there's a great wealth of information in here. Very cool, very cool. Thank you so much. So I do wish we'd had more time to discuss everything that's in this book, but hopefully people can pick up their own copy, and they can get that from your website or from Amazon. Yeah, absolutely. It's on the website and, and on Amazon as well. And, uh, you know, and, and I would encourage folks, you know, to there's there's two more principles. So it's kind of a cliffhanger. I love that. There's two more principles that, that make up the C and the H. And so if anyone, you know, is curious and wants to check that out, um, feel free to contact me. And, and certainly we can, you know, provide some more resources and information, you know, to folks to help them really dig into this. That is wonderful. Is there anything that you would like to share with us or leave as some parting advice? You know, one of the things is that I I often run into this this dichotomy because people see the book Redefine Rich and they're like, oh, is it not important to make money? And, and this book and this message, it's it has it has very little to do with downplaying the importance of, of money. If anything, it's the other side. I think money is 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 important, and we need to understand that it's about its position. Um, and so I, I fully believe that everyone has the opportunity and capacity to live a rich life. It just sometimes needs redefining so we can get a better grasp on what it is that we're pursuing. As we say, clear definitions, you know, lead to clear answers. And so sometimes in our life when we're struggling or wondering how to change, you know, maybe we just need some, some new perspective. Maybe we need to redefine a few things in our lives, and that can be, you know, everything we need. That is beautiful. Somewhere I heard that your business growth will be in proportion to your personal growth. So would it be a fair assumption that if you can 
start from that place of realizing where you're broken and put in the work to do the growth that you would eventually earn more money? You know, I, I do think, I don't think that it's, it's a promise. I mean, I wouldn't say that, like, if you grow personally, that it automatically makes you make more money. But I, I do feel like that, you know, because I'm not a fan of kind of the prosperity, you know what I mean, that type of mentality. Because, like I said, I in my own life experience challenges financially. But I will say this, is that you cannot be professionally successful and personally miserable. Mm-hmm. I think that those two will collide at some point in time. And I have interviewed way too many retirees who get to the end of their life, their marriages are broken, their relationships are strained, and they say, I did all of that for this. Yeah. And so I, I think that if we focus on the, the personal development side, if we focus on that personal internal richness, it frees us up in the professional space, and I think that that in turn will lead us, and I think that the perspective we have will eventually lead us to kind of this this greatness and this prosperity, but, you know, again, it, it's a process, you know. It's not a there, – there are no easy answers. There are no quick fixes, you know. It's a journey that we each have to go on, and, it, and for some folks it just takes longer than others. Wow, great advice. Thank you so much, Matt Hamm, author of Redefine Rich. I definitely appreciate you taking the time to share your story with us today. Absolutely, Gina. Have an awesome day, okay? You too. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Second Chance Radio. Personal stories of near-death experiences, the journey, and beyond. For the most positive and uplifting time on the radio. So tune in again with your host, Gina Kane of Second Chance Radio. Second Chance Radio.